So, Stephen, do you know what open enrollment is? Um, uh, not a hundred percent, man. Uh, give me some, give me some uh, background on that. Well, it's basically when you're working for a company and you have to change something on your insurance form. Like if you got married, you put your spouse on your insurance form. If you have a child, you put your child on your uh, insurance form. It's basically what you do during this period called open enrollment. So I was working at this company. It was kind of like my dream job. And I had changed something in my open enrollment form and I had sent it off to an HR person like at Friday at three o'clock. She emails me back. She says, this looks great. I'll put it into your, uh, into the system. So just as I'm about to leave for the day, an email comes in from the same HR person. And I figure she's just verifying what we had discussed. And lo and behold, it was an email to someone else in HR, not to me, that my last day was the following Friday. Wait, what? And I was like, I, it's my last day. This is the first I'm hearing about this. Oh my God. So I, Immediately call her. She picks up the phone. And I say, hey, Karen, it's Jack. Um, this email says my last day is on Friday. This is the first I've heard about it. And she says, oh, I'm sorry. Um, I'm really confused. <laughs> Let me call you back. Oh, no. So I call her boss. I don't know how she was so confused. But I call her boss and I say, hey, Samantha, it's Jack. And I just saw this email that my last day is on Friday. Can you elaborate? This is the first I've heard about it. There's another long pause. She says, uh, there's someone in my office. Let me call you right back. And she hangs up super quickly. Oh, what? Yes. And I was like, oh, well, this isn't good. <laughs> you know what? I'm not waiting around. So I just get in my car. I drive away. And on my way home, I get a call from her telling me that, yes, indeed, it is true. My last day is Friday. And they apologized that they sent it to me accidentally via email. So two days later... They said, well, come back in on Monday. And I said, I'm not coming back in on Monday. I'm just going to come in on Saturday and pick up my stuff from my office. So I show up on Saturday to pick up my stuff. And there is a six foot eight, 300 pound dude standing over me as I'm packing up my office, making sure I don't steal anything. <laughs> but anyway, that job sucked. <laughs> and the people there sucked. And everyone who worked there was an asshole. And, but you know, so you know what? At the end of the day, it was good that I no longer worked there because it honestly was the worst working experience I had in my entire life, and I was happy to be gone. I'm Jack Hergith. And I'm Stephen Kramer Glickman. And this is Never Surrender. The show where we sit down with the most successful people in the entertainment industry to talk about failure and how they pushed through it and never gave up. Because we've all failed. We've all had setbacks. Yeah, we've all questioned whether to keep going. But at some point, everybody struggles. Yeah, I mean, I've been let go from some of my favorite jobs. You and me both. We just hope that by listening to this podcast, it will help give you the strength to never surrender. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. 
Our guest today is one of the funniest and most talented guys out there. He's written for a number of different shows, including In Living Color, Sister Sister, The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, and The Office. He created The Bernie Mac Show, and he co-created Insecure. For a while, you might have seen him as a correspondent on The Daily Show, but after that, he went on to host his own show, The Nightly Show. He just wrapped up the first season of his late-night Peacock series, Wilmore. This man has won an Emmy, a Peabody, and is really living his dream. But he had to fail so many times to get to where he's at today. He never gave up, and he never surrendered. This is Larry Wilmore. Our guest today is Larry Wilmore, and it is such an honor to have you on the show, man. Thank you. Wow. Yes, thank, so much thank for Thank you for doing here. the show. We uh, are guys. very excited to have you here today. I appreciate it. It's fun to be here. Um, I know that you, uh, you did you start as a stand-up comedian? Is that how you got your start? In the business. Um, yeah, it was a dual thing. I started as an actor, quote-unquote, <laughs> you know. <laughs> And, and a stand-up, I kind of had a dual start, but I realized acting was so frustrating, going on auditions and things. Oh yeah, stand-up gave me a way to kind of control my destiny a little bit. So I was trying to do both at the same time. Yeah, it, it really mm-hmm. does uh, open those doors. And and what's yeah. so great about it too, like where were you performing as a comedian? Well, back in the early early days, there was a club called it's not there anymore. It's the Laugh Stop in Newport Beach. Oh okay um, mm-hmm. okay. Um, my dad had gone back. My dad was a probation officer, and he had gone back to school to become a doctor, and he was going to UC Irvine. So I was, I was just sleeping on his floor at that time. He just had a small apartment. And, um, you know, I, I had made the decision that I wanted to do stand-up comedy, and I'd, I already dipped my toe into acting. I had a, I got a part in The Facts of Life. I did a couple of Oh, oh nice. yes. Oh, yeah, yes. This, of course. this was way back in the day. And I had done theater, and I had gotten my equity card. But, you know... Um, I had thought about doing stand-up um, even before that. When I was in high school, I kind of lied about my age and auditioned at the comedy store, you know, that kind of thing. Oh, how but old I was, were you? I was way over my head. I was about 17, 16, something like that, maybe 16. But um, And I, re- I did really good the first night, and then when I came back for the showcase, I was, like, sick and I had the flu. <laughs> I was like, it was horrible. It was like the death of deaths. Oh, my God. And I was scared to go back. It took me years to try it again because I was just so overwhelmed, you know. But I knew it was something I thought I really wanted to do. So when I started acting and going on auditions, I thought, you know what, I need to start doing stand-up again. Just to, It was too frustrating just being out there. It felt like the world was controlling too much of my destiny and career, you know, sure, such yeah. things yeah. possible. Like, and, uh, and I know showbiz is like that, but I just couldn't take it for me. You know, maybe it's control issues or whatever. But stand-up, you can go up to a club on an open mic night and perform, mm-hmm. you know, so you're doing something. And so I found that more practical as a way to at least be in showbiz. What was your act like? Oh, it was, it was a hodgepodge of things. Um, it was like stuff that made me laugh, basically. But um, I did some impressions. I did a lot of impressions back what? then. What? Did you really? I did. I did do What was your but best I impression? Do, but I didn't have an impressionist act. Okay. I, the impression would serve the joke if I needed it to. Totally. Yeah. What was your favorite impression? Um... I had a lot of quirky ones. They were random. But the first the first real joke that I wrote was a political one. This was one of my first open mic night. And, you know, this is how old it was. But uh, I was talking about politics. And I said, you know, every politician lies. The only one they didn't was George Washington. You know, his father asked him if he chopped down a cherry tree. He said, yes. But I said, but what if other politicians had chopped down their cherry tree? What would they have said? You know, it's a typical setup. And, um, Terrific. 
back then, you know, I would say, like, if Nixon had chopped down his tree, you know, it's a, Richard, come here, did you chop down my tree? He's like, uh, well, uh, you know, Daddy, I, uh, <laughs> looking in retrospect, <laughs> uh, I can firmly say that although I, I did authorize uh, the initial breaking of the tool shed, uh, <laughs> I must say that that in no significant way links me to the actual chopping. <laughs> yeah. It still gets laughs. There you go. Oh, that's awesome. And then I would do uh, Sick Carter. Well, I didn't chop it, but I chopped it in my heart. You know, something like that. <laughs> and then Reagan, what was the great? Those liberals. It was something like that. But the bit ended with Jesse Jackson because this was his big run. And I said, Jesse, come here. Did you chop down my tree? Well, um, that day, um, <laughs> the question is... Uh, not whether or not <laughs> I chop down your tree as much as do I believe in the tree's right to exist. <laughs> On that point, I do. Furthermore, Daddy, I believe in the rights of all trees. I think it's wrong to merely address the plight of the cherry tree alone. There's the apple tree. There's the orange tree. There's the fig tree. They have locked out of the garden. Daddy, you know. And oh, I was just thinking about the shrubbery. And that was That's my awesome. first... Ever stand up bit and it killed. Now I had stuff around it that, you know, but that bit told me I should continue because it was like instantly told me, okay, that feels like a classic bit, you know? Yeah. So I built a, an act around that bit. And the way I would build my act is if a bit didn't live up to the funniness of the things that were really working, it couldn't stay in the act. Yeah. And so after about a year and a half, I had a pretty strong, like, 12 to 15 minutes of stuff that got really big left. There was no thematic thing in it. It wasn't about me growing up or that kind of stuff. It was really a hodgepodge, you know. Sure. Sure, yeah. Now, for me, doing that style of comedy, in the clubs, it worked really well. But, like, it didn't get me auditions for things, you know, because I wasn't doing ghetto humor or, you know, mm -hmm. the typical black type of comic who had to come from the ghetto, had to talk about gorilla the pussy you know this kind of act you know sure and so it was very frustrating for me because i did really well in clubs you know the audience appreciated that i had kind of a writer's act did that help as as becoming a writer did that I help know, as far as like people seeing you and going oh this guy's got a writer's funny. mind i didn't think about myself as a writer then because i always wrote because i needed an act so mm -hmm. it was more practical you know, like, but I spent every day writing jokes, you know, and then I had friends who, if I saw their act, I go, oh, you know what would be funny? And I would give them a joke and I was not unbeknownst to me, I was writing, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. and I would always give jokes to people and that kind of stuff, you know, because I just, I loved watching somebody's act and imagining what would be funny for it. And it would help me, you know, with my jokes and things like that. It's funny. Stand up truly did prepare me for a life of writing that I didn't know was coming. So at what point did you sort of make the transition from doing stand-up mm -hmm. into writing? Like, Well, stand-up was a lot of fun, as I said. You know, I did really well in the clubs, but I was very frustrated because ultimately I wanted to be an actor. You know, I wanted to be on a show or that type of thing. But I knew there was a wall in terms of Hollywood accepting me. And it was weird because when I was a kid, like, if you were a black comic, you could occur in many different ways. Mm -hmm. You know, you could be... Um, a comic a storyteller like Bill Cosby, you know, Cosby never talked about race or anything. Or you could be a social uh, social activist comic like Dick Gregory, who focused on those things. You could be a hipster like Godfrey Cambridge, you know, sure. that type of thing. Or you could be more of a vaudevillian joke teller like Flip Wilson, mm -hmm. you know, who yeah. comes more from the vaudeville Catskill type of sure. 
of of uh, history, you know. And so black comics weren't categorized as one type of thing. You know, you could be smart, you could be, you know, body or whatever, you oh, know. Yeah, yeah. But by the time of the late 80s, early 90s, you had to be the deaf comedy jam type of comic, even though it was pre-deaf comedy jam, you know. But it was, that was the... That's what Hollywood would only accept, you know. And I found that <laughs> number one offensive. And it was also wall. So I realized, you know, if I'm going to have a career, I'm probably going to have to learn how to write and create that path for myself. Because I was inspired by what Robert and Keenan and those guys did. And even Spike at the time. And that's why I started writing. You know, it was oh, really cool. for practical reasons. It wasn't because I'm a writer, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I need to write. Sit what down, was the, uh, the first thing that you wrote? Do you remember? So the very first show that I got on... Um, was Rick D's late night show? Oh wow! Uh, I remember wow! That show. Yeah, Rick D's. For those of you who don't know, Rick D's. For those of you who don't know, who Rick D's is. <laughs> <by the way>. <laughs> <laughs> but he had a late night show in ABC. I was on the show for about um, not even a long time, maybe six months or something like that. Um, and I got maybe even shorter than that. It may have been like four months. And I got on in Living Color, which was my big break. Oh, cool! At the time, yeah. What helped me was all those years of stand-up and writing, and even my theater background. I was a theater major in school, and was very serious about that. Studied playwriting, all that kind of stuff, all the classics. All that helped me by the time I got to late night television. Like I was already overqualified in that sense, you know. So, and then sketch writing was good because I knew how to come up with ideas and pitch and at least make things funny, you know. And as you start learning sketch you learn more about the process of writing so i learned a lot on the job but i brought a lot to it at the same time like i knew how to be funny on in a joke form mm -hmm. you know and then for me sketch was just a longer form of the joke one of the terms i use about in living color because the living color is really difficult you know i always say it was the worst of times it was the worst of times you yeah know? as a writer that's a hard and, and why why was that it was the the demand of it you know, um, you had to we had to pitch every week and then it started turning into every day and like these five ideas and you're it was there was just never rest. And you thought you're going to get fired all the time. It's really a lot of pressure. And it's one thing to come up with ideas for characters, but coming up with original new ideas all the time is it just taxes your brain in a way that nothing else does. It was very, very difficult, you know, mm -hmm. and trying to come up with that kind of stuff, you know. Did you, were you afraid you would lose your job? Oh, or? everybody was, yeah. Uh -huh. I mean, Keenan, he was, uh, you know, the joke was Murphy Brown at the time who had a new assistant. Like, Keenan had a new assistant almost every week, too. Wow. Yeah, it was funny. But, um, um, what yeah, you, and people got fired all the time for things. You what know? did you do to deal with that kind of pressure? Like, I don't know. You know, I just... I just worked as hard as I could and just hoped it went well. <laughs> but you never, you just didn't know, you know. It yeah. could, you could just be let go, you know. It was very, uh, it was very competitive. When I got to sitcoms, my first show was Sister, Sister, actually. Oh, wow. Oh, yes. Um, and uh, the show was just launching, so I was there in the beginning. And um, someone else in this room wrote on Sister, what? Sister. Yeah, who would that what be? That, who yeah, was yeah, yeah. that? I don't know if that's a possibility. <laughs> How could that be? Uh, and, uh, that's remember, when it was on ABC, right? That was when it was on ABC. Yeah, yeah. And I remember they say, uh, yeah, so if you guys come up with maybe two or three story ideas, you know, next week, I'm like, two or three? <laughs> <laughs> I had like 15 story oh, ideas. Oh, my God. So it really prepared me for sitcoms in a way. You know, I could, I was never afraid of generating story ideas after, the, after having worked in that sketch environment. You know, wow. Fresh Prince was tough because 
at that point, I think it was the last season, and Will's manager at the time, or one of his people, was running it, and it was just a disaster <laughs> from a writer's point of view, and it was just late nights and all this stuff. I ended up leaving the show. Felicia Henderson was on until she left it. It was just how, not, not how working How far out. into the show? Like, how many seasons? How long into it were you? What season did you come on? Uh, yeah, I think it was the last season. Oh, it was the last oh, okay. season. Yeah, or one okay. of the last yeah. seasons, yeah. When I got there, the show had been on for a while, but still such a great cast, you know. It, when you, the opportunity, I've been really, really lucky where I've worked on shows with casts who were just, I mean, just crackerjack, you know, so good, and where the audience really loved them a lot, too. Yeah. 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 At what point did you decide, like, okay, I'm a writer now? Like, in terms mm-hmm. of, like, I've, okay, I've been on Living right. Color, Fresh Prince, Sister, Sister. Like, do you still feel like... I'm a comedian, you know, mm-hmm. writing scripts for uh, right. sitcoms or like, okay, I'm a full-fledged writer now. Yeah. So my evil plan was to get a job and tell her to learn how to write so I could eventually write for myself, you know? Right. That was my evil plan. But the more I did it, the more I kind of liked it, you know? And I was learning more about myself, too, and what really kind of fueled me more than anything else, you know? Yeah. And it's funny, like, in terms of performing, I never performed for attention from the audience. You know, I always perform for expression, mm-hmm. you know, like like I love telling I love crafting the joke. And if the audience laughs, that means I succeeded. But I don't need them to like when people say the love from the audience like that, I don't need, you know, right. That's very uncomfortable. Like even off stage, if you get if I get too much recognition, it's a bit uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Sure. So yeah, so I didn't that. have so I so I didn't need stand up for any kind of personal fulfillment in terms of emotional need. I did it for the expression. So. This sort of write, writing for comedy, I was able to get out that expression. At the time I kind of left stand-up, which is kind of the early 90s, I was starting to find my, my real self. You know how mm-hmm. it takes a while to find mm-hmm. that? Sure. Because I was, I was good at writing jokes early on, so I was able to, to like headline and that kind of stuff. But it really wasn't a true representation of, of me fully as a performer, I think. And as I started to find that, ironically, I kind of left it, you uh-huh. know? And I, re- and I remember thinking that. I'm like, man, I'm starting to figure out who I am. I realized, like, when Pryor says it takes 10 years, he was right. And it was almost about that amount of time, too, where it was starting to click in, you know? Now, when did you meet Bernie Mac? When did that? Bernie, um, I met Bernie the first time when I was doing a show called The PJs, the animated show with, Love that with Steve show. Tompkins. Yeah, terrific. And Eddie Murphy. And um, we used to have to go and record Eddie wherever he was. <laughs> <laughs> really? Because, you know, it's Steve and I would always make jokes about it. It was so funny. And, and one of the times we had to go on the set of Life, he was doing this movie with Martin Lawrence. So I'm walking around, and it was it was a very cool set out there. And Bernie was in the cast, and he was just sitting waiting for something. And I was a fan, you know, went over and talked to him, said, hey, man, um, Larry Moore just wanted to say, hey, man, how you doing? You know, and Bernie couldn't have been nicer. You know, we had a great conversation and I said, you know, I'd love to write something for you. Said, eh, that'd be good. Yeah. And we just kind of left it at that, you know. And um, then years later, a um, few years later, I had an idea to I was I had a pilot um, script deal to write a pilot script. And I was trying to think of what I wanted to do. This was after the PJs. And um, I was looking at kind of um, uh, reality television. It was just starting to happen in a big way then. And there was a show called 1900 House on PBS that was fascinating to me. And they put a camera in a house where cameras in a house. And the family had to live as if it was 1900, you know. Oh, I remember that show. Yeah, yeah, and it was real interesting. And I thought, oh, this is a fascinating thing of the just observing people's behavior I thought was very interesting. I was always a fan of candy camera and that kind of stuff, and just observing behavior was interesting to me. And I thought, what if we did a show where it looks like we're just observing the family rather than 
the action being so forced at us with jokes and that type of thing, but more like we're kind of observing people behaving and that type of thing. And I thought, oh, that's real cool, you know. And, and so I had a conceptual idea, and then I saw Bernie and Kings of Comedy doing the show about taking care of his sister's kids, you know, and uh, how he didn't take any shit from them. He says, I believe you should be able to hit a child in the stomach or the throat. <laughs> like <he'd> say, <laughs> in the stomach or the throat. Like oh those are his two God. those are his two areas, you know. <laughs> and I could not stop laughing. I said, man, you know, this would actually be a good emotional thing to put in because I thought, how can I get the audience to watch this? I said, Boy, if you had an emotional story, Bernie Mac taking care of his sister's kids because she's on crack. Mm-hmm. I'm like, well, that makes me go, oh, that that might make me think this is a real thing that I'm watching, you know. And that, so I kind of put that idea together, and um, I approached Bernie and pitched it to him, and he loved it. Thought it was great. He was trying to figure out. He had just done a pilot a year earlier that didn't go well at all. It was a multicam, and it just wasn't right. You know, at that point, Bernie was already a legend as a comic. You yeah, know, he couldn't sure. be in some we- some soft show. It just wouldn't serve him right for what for what his audience really appreciated. Him. So I thought if I did a um, single camera show I wouldn't be competing with that Bernie Mac I could use a different side of him a more softer quieter personal side you know and and do it in that way so when like the the show how how long after the show ended did he pass away do you know I don't remember the timing of all of that because I had left after a couple of seasons, I was fired by Fox, and after we won every award you could possibly win. Well, um, well let me ask you that because real you, quick. You, what was that yeah, like? You I won mean, an Emmy for, yeah, for writing Emmy, show. Peabody, Humanitas, Critics' Choice. So uh, when did you were so fired? Why do they fire Golden Globe nominee. From the they just, show. They never understood it, and they thought somehow I was ruining this idea that they had of what it should be, even though I'm the one that pitched it to them. Wow. Yeah, you and created this what? idea, and now they think you're Correct. ruining the idea. Exactly. Like, oh, my God. And uh, it was just a battle from the beginning. They just never understood it. And they just didn't understand. At the time, it was mostly multi-camera shows in television, and I consciously knew I was doing something different. I had deconstructed that in order to write this. In fact, Ken Quapis directed the pilot, and we talked extensively about what needs to happen in the style of this. We actually watched French New Wave films to prepare oh, for wow. this. You know, we watched we watched them together. Four hundred you know. blows and exactly uh, yeah. all that stuff. You know, and well, we wanted to bring. We I consciously knew there had to be a different rhythm to this than what we're watching on TV. I, I wanted to draw the audience in, you know, in a certain way. This was all mm-hmm. conscious intentional like in fact as some of it i've been put in the script at the time like there was one sequence in the pilot where bernie's talking to the audience you know telling us this play and then he hears jordan crying and he's like Ugh. and then he leaves the frame and i and i wrote in the script that we stay there just a beat too long mm-hmm. where it becomes a little uncomfortable you know you can hear him because in my mind i didn't know he was gonna leave Maybe he's going to come right back. How am I supposed... Why, why, why am I cutting? This is a surprise, you know? Mm-hmm. So I wanted to convey that to the audience, you know? So then... So we stay there a little too long when we hear him. And then we cut to the hallway, but he's not there yet. Like, we're, we cut to the wrong place in the house. <laughs> <You know? laughs> wow, really? Yeah, so it's like... Like, I did that on purpose. Like, I don't even know what's going on here. And then he comes running through with the kid. You know, he's chasing him. And then we cut back to his office just a beat early, just a beat. And then he comes back in. So it was very conscious structure of this thing that to upset a rhythm of very tight editing and that kind of stuff to make it give it a very similitude is what I was using, where it feels like we're just catching this family doing these things, you know. That's really cool. Yeah. And so that was all conscious stuff. But they would give me notes about like 
why can't the wife be this, that, and that, you know, that were like typical sitcom style notes. And I would always resist those things. Like I remember one exec said, what is, what is Wanda doing right now? I said, she's a fictional character. She's not doing anything. Like she'll right. do something. <laughs> if I need her in the story to do something, she'll do something. But, right. but you know, it's not that important for yeah. this story. You know? so wow. So I would, I would fight them all the time, you know, so it was this constant fight. I remember there was once when there was this exec, I don't even know if he's in showbiz anymore. And he, he was obviously trying to embarrass me in front of everybody because they were so frustrated with it. And I was like, well, let me give you this one example. Like some of the episodes. And by the way, this type of television is accepted now. But this is in the year 2001. OK, they didn't know what was going on. But now people tell stories like this in mm-hmm. nonlinear ways or different ways. You know, it's very much accepted. So but then I was a heretic. You know, some of it, believe me, I felt was racial, too. Like I was that dumb nigga that didn't know what he was doing, you know. Oh, wow. So, well, because afterwards they brought in this white guy who had no experience show running. What does he know about a black family raising it? Didn't even what? have kids. Had never run a single camera show. Oh, wow. Nothing. The show was almost ruined and they had to get rid of him. But they gave him a big overall deal because it wasn't his fault. You know, <laughs> oh, <laughs> but, I was the one that thought of all these things, won all these awards, but I was the stupid guy that didn't know what he was doing. Wow. So there's a little racism for you. I'm so sorry. That's right. But um, there was one episode I'll never forget that it was called Hot, Hot, Hot. And the episode was it was hot. You know, (laughs) 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 they were so frustrated (laughs) because they could not give notes. They didn't know. They just said, well, what happens? I go, well, it's hot. (laughs) 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 Because I did not. Give these people aneurysms. (laughs) Yes, Yes. I did. But because they didn't know how we were writing the shows, I wasn't writing a plot-driven show. I was writing a character journey show the show was a journey that the character went on and even in the pilot what i was saying is at the end of the pilot there's not some plot machination like we don't understand is he going to keep the kids or lose the kids that would be a plot machination. at the end of it he has a deeper understanding of what it means to be an uncle and a father Mm -hmm. that's what it is so by this journey it's more that you'll get a um you kind of get a gestalt of what it is more than anything else A lot more to come with Larry Wilmore when we come back. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. 
No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. And so what was it like, you know, getting removed or mm-hmm. let go from a show that you had created? Like, how did you tough. react to it that? It was one of the lowest points of my career and my marriage was in trouble at the time too because my wife and I were having you know problems so I was both <laughs> feeling like both both career and personal life were just at a at oh the at the nadir you know what, what it was you... terrible it was one of the worst moments of my because you, you don't know you think your career could be over you know you of get course. booted from this great thing but I have to tell you guys I got so much love from people in the industry. It was amazing because at the time, writers would call me during the week and say, man, I watched last week's Bernie Mac show. It was fucking amazing. You guys are doing a great job. And I had, there was a lot of support. Writers are amazing when we're supporting each other out there. You know, because a lot of us, when we're doing it, we're fans of each other's shows. And that helps you make your show better, that type of thing, you know. Yeah. And that's what the feeling was back then. So when I was fired, like the writing community was aghast, you know, mm-hmm. yeah. and I got so much support. Um, I remember in the press, like, and I tried not to be blaming the press and stuff. Like they asked me, well, what happened? I said, well, we had creative differences. I was creative and they were different. You know? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's genius. That's brilliant. <laughs> wow. And, that uh, so but that's as that's as much negativity as I put out there. I didn't go more negative than that. I just let it let it go because I had to move on because you know it was such a burden. What 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 did you do personally to to deal with uh, that kind of stuff? Did you did you take um, up any hobbies or <laughs> or take any long walks like things like that? Like anything to? I'm thinking back. I don't think so. I think healing those wounds took a while, but. My tra- my biggest transition during that time was I was I started thinking, you know, it may be time to go back to performing right now. Mm-hmm. And I thought in my mind, I said, I think you should start making the transition to doing that. And I, I wrote a pilot for NBC right after it was one of my favorites. It ended up not going, but um, but the process was good. And so I had a deal. NBC had me just like a two year deal. And I said, well, um, would you Greg Daniels is going to do the office here, would, you know, would you mind going on the show and helping out? And I said, sure, I had known Greg for years, you know. And uh, so I went in the office, and the office kind of saved me in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Um, because at that time, I, I thought, you know, I, I think I'll do, I'll go down two paths right now. I'll try to create the show that I think I can star in and that type of thing, because I felt I was ready to do that. But I wanted to get back to stand-up, to what that was, and try to maybe go down the road of getting a talk show type of thing. I said, those are the two roads I'm going to, try to navigate right mm-hmm. now and I'm consciously kind of put that out there and when we were doing The Office <laughs> I remember um, um, Diversity Day was like the second episode yeah, right yeah of course we were all joking about it <laughs> and um, at the table read I just read the part because we hadn't hired the actor yet and Greg came and said Larry you have to do that it's so funny <laughs> oh, that's so <laughs> and I was like no I, re- I don't want to take a job from an actor you know we should really do it you know and I was very sincere about it you know because I had done so many table reads like PJs, I used to do all the table reads, and I do all the characters sometimes, all that stuff. So I would have fun at table reads. And I'm, you're a stand-up, you're a performer, yeah. you know you're going to crush it in front of an audience, sure. you know. Oh, yeah, yeah. So table read, I'm like, 
of course, of course, it, it was funny at the table. That's what I do, guys. I get laughs in front of me, <laughs> but it doesn't mean I should play the part. Was what I was thinking, you know. Just trying to, you know, be thoughtful of actors who need the work. Why should the producer on the show get it? Was the way I was thinking. Yeah. But Greg thought of the show differently. He wanted the people involved in the show to be on it too, because like Mindy was a writer, BJ was a writer. They're on the show, so he wanted to have that kind of. Uh, kind of collaborative feel in the show too you know nobody was really doing that at that time so it's kind of interesting and um i said look why don't would you at least audition some people and if you don't find anybody i'll do it you know and i was thinking of the pilot i was writing so i was being very sincere i wasn't being coy or anything Mm -hmm. yeah and so then come back said larry we couldn't find anybody you're doing it (laughs) and i really didn't think that much of it i just thought it would be fun and it turned out to be so much fun uh, working with Steve Carell and all them, and I had so much fun. I thought, you know what? This, I need to be doing this again. I forgot mm-hmm. how much fun this is, you oh. know. And, and that it, episode is. It yeah. turned Such out to be a classic. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah, my yeah. god! Little did I know, you know. Man, oh man. So how did you take that that role and sort of okay uh, so move forward with performing? Yes. Yeah, so at that point, I go. You know what? I'm. You know, I forgot how much I enjoy this, and you know, uh, you know, obviously people like it, so I should keep doing it. Three Arts approached me at the, at this time and said, hey, you know, are you interested in some management? I said, yeah, I didn't even think about this. I met with them. They seemed great, you know. And the first, and I told them what my evil plan was. I want to go down this path, hopefully get a talk show and this. I said, but on the talk show route, I haven't done stand-up in a while, and I think I need to get back in front of an audience. I need to to get that connection again with my audience, you know, because that's how you go the talk show route. You have to have an audience, and you just have to be doing that. I can't just do a talk show. I mean, Conan is the only person who's really done that, you know? Yeah, yeah just came of off a writing staff yeah. and then started. He didn't really have an audience, you know, right. but it's very rare, you know? Um, and I just, you know, just having done stand-up, I knew that I needed to find out where I was right now, too, because the show's going to come out of that point of view, right? Mm-hmm. And so we were trying to figure out what's the best way to do that, knowing that I was doing this other stuff, too. And I think it was David Miner said, what about the uh, Daily Show? Maybe you could... Uh, be one of the correspondents in there it might be a way to, and I was like oh that's an interesting idea and so he had a client that was already on it and set up a meeting and I got to meet with John and John was just great you know and just guy, yeah. the whole meeting was kind of shooting the shit really uh-huh. I don't even think we talked about the job <laughs> you know <laughs> he couldn't have been nicer you know and um, so was there a job available there or was this just something yeah it was that kind you... of a transition you uh-huh. know Ed Helms had just left to do the office I always called it a prisoner exchange program wow. Ed Helms <laughs> went to do the office wow. as I went to go do the daily show oh, we kind of like crazy. crossed over in Nebraska somewhere you know uh, Colbert had left the year earlier to do his own show um, so a couple of correspondents had left uh, I know John went to mix it up a bit he had just hired Oliver he had just hired um I think Asif was hired right about that same time, and Rob Briggle, John Hodgman. We were all kind of newish at that time coming in, you know. So it was kind of a transition, and I thought, oh, this could be a way where I could kind of connect with the audience and and do that. And this would, I felt, it could lead to the talk show type of thing. So that show leads you into doing the nightly show. That show, absolutely, and then. My other track, I was doing other things. So I was yeah. always moonlighting at The Daily Show and, and still trying to do the other thing on the other side, you know. So even on the way to The Nightly Show, I end up helping to launch Blackish and mm-hmm. co-creating Insecure and all that kind of stuff. Of you course, know? of course. And trying to, at the same time, trying to figure out what was there for me. There was still a couple of attempts. I couple of pilots that didn't quite go where I was working with talent and that type of thing. It's job is very frustrating. A lot of people don't see the stuff in the dark that goes down, you know, they they see the stuff in the light, of course, you know. Yeah. Sure, yeah. But there were a lot of just 
you know that's what the show's about all the stuff in the dark that goes down really yeah yeah you know failed pilots that didn't go you know sometimes you do something you go god that like there was one script i wrote i think it was from martin lawrence where i just knew i didn't write a good script you know where i said larry you just didn't write a good script you know i just knew it i'm like this is just not good enough and it's a horrible feeling you know and you look back you go what where did i go wrong on it you know well, and did you beat yourself up over that, or does that I didn't beat like myself you... up, but I was very disappointed because uh-huh. I had some ideas and they just didn't come together well, and I just felt I didn't handle it well. Martin was great, but um, so I know I had, I had things that I personally was disappointed in myself for. I didn't blame like the forces or that type of thing. Oh, this thing should have gone, because I can tell the difference when I know it's really solid and when I go, mm, Larry, you could have done better. So, uh, just to jump back, uh, so yeah. Nightly Show um, was a very funny show. Oh, and thanks. You, did, you were fantastic on it. Thanks. And it was, it, what, <laughs> what does it feel like to have a show that has your name mm-hmm. in the title of the show? That's got to <laughs> feel well, Is there lots of pressure there? Intense. Like, oh my God, I can't. I didn't like my face being just everywhere. I just, I was very uncomfortable with that. But um, but I didn't feel pressure from it that it had my name on it. You know, I feel like that just goes with the territory. Um, I felt more pressure to be following John Stewart, you know, and following mm-hmm. Stephen Colbert. That's where I felt the pressure, you know. So the pressure to me came in the content, you know, and making yeah, right. sure that Did you that ha- this thing is worthy to be where it's at, you know. Thank you. I'm so, I have to say, man, I am so excited to be here. This is so exciting. I mean, I feel like there's so much to talk about, you know? Oh, man, especially if I had the show a year ago. (laughs) Man, all of the good, bad, race stuff happened already. (laughs) Seriously, there's nothing left. We're done. And so I just want to ask a question. Like, what was the process of you getting the nightly show, like... You obviously had a relationship with John being on The Daily yeah. Show. Like, did he reach out to you and say, hey, I've got a project for you There's now? A very good story around that. <laughs> oh, nice. really? Oh, let's hear um, it. So, at the point I was in my career, um, I had develop- I was developing Insecure at the time uh, with HBO. And HBO has a really long process that could be very frustrating. You don't know what's going to happen in the meantime. If you're not working somewhere, you're not making any money because mm-hmm. you have this one script. There's only yeah. so much money in that one script, right? And, uh, you know, I got kids, I got a family, you know. And so I was called by ABC, who I had a relationship with some of the execs there from years ago, if I wanted to help, uh, if, if I would come and help do this pilot, they would consider shooting it, you know, and it turned out to be blackish. Oh, cool. And I read it and it was great. You know, Kenya's vision was on page one. You could, it just jumped out at you. I'm like, this thing is awesome. Are you kidding me? Yeah. And I met with Kenya and we really hit it off. It was great. And so Kenya and I were producing the pilot. You know, and I didn't know what was happening in Secure at the time. That was kind of on hold. And um, it was so much fun doing Blackish. We're doing that and we're going along. And David Letterman announces he's leaving uh, Letterman. Kenya jokes. He says, oh, Larry, man, you have to take over for Letterman. Says, you, would be, <laughs> you would be perfect. For that. And I said, I can't take over for Letterman. Are you crazy? Nobody cares about me doing that. I'm too old, first of all. You can't start a job like that. <laughs> you know, and I said, but nobody, I, you know, I can't just, how am I going to walk in after Letterman? It doesn't even make sense. I'm not on anybody's radar. And we joked about it and all that stuff. And then shortly thereafter, Colbert announced he was leaving and he was going to take over for Letterman, you know, like shortly thereafter. And then Kenya goes, oh, Larry, you have to do stuff. You have to take over Stephen Show. <laughs> he says, you have to do that. And I go, well, actually, that, 
that could be interesting. I said, but I don't know. But just so the universe is settled, I ended up calling John and I said, hey, John, I don't know if you have anything to do with this or whatever, but if, you know, if you, you know, want to do, I would love to do something with you if you want to. And he said, well, I don't know if I'm going to be asked to do this or whatever. And we had a polite conversation about it. I just expressed that just to get it out in the universe. And we hung up, you know? Yeah. And that was it. I said, okay, it's in the universe. There, done. I can never feel regretful that I never brought it up or whatever. Were you still doing stuff for The Daily Show at that point? or? Yeah, but I hadn't done I hadn't done one in a while. But yeah, but I still was like, if something would happen. So then, there you go, the Donald Sterling thing happens, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. with the Clippers. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which for those people that don't know, I, the local thing with Donald Sterling, who was the owner of the Clippers, had this real racist uh, uh, stuff come out with these secret tapes where he's talking to his girlfriend. Ooh, yeah. He didn't want black people like sitting next to her and all this stuff. It was horrible. And he's the owner of the Clippers, you know. Yeah. And he had a history of treating tenants horribly and all this kind of stuff. So people are kind of happy to see him go. And so I got called, you know, had to go do the Daily Show, you know, talk about Donald Sterling. Of course. And, and we were still, we were almost at the end of producing the pilot. Um, so I go and do it, and John calls me. And so I say, Larry, can I talk to you for a second? I go, sure. And he says, hey, you know, I was thinking of doing this show. Um, I, he says, I get all these tapes of so many people, like especially diverse types that just don't get a chance, you know, on television to kind of have their voice. And then I think it would be good to have a show where more diverse voices get to have get to have a voice, you know, and get to say something, you know, and and I go, oh great. And he says, yeah, and I think you should host it. And I go, he said, what do you think? I go, yeah, I guess. <laughs> and I go, oh, fuck. so many sounds were just created. I yeah, know, just created so many. Sounds. And I'm like, fuck. Did John Stewart just say, do you want to have a talk show? I'm like, what the fuck? And here I go. How long have I been in the business at this point? Yeah. I've won an Emmy already. You know, Peabody. I've won all these awards, and yet I'm like a little kid in, you know, talking to John Stewart, and he's saying this thing, and I'm like, shit. You know, I guess. You know, but. It was so, like, just life-changing in an instant. Sure. Wow. How long you know? did you uh, think about it before you were like, yes? Like a second. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Because I knew I had to do it. Of yeah. course. I, just, I knew that I had to do it. I didn't know what it was going to be. I knew it was going to be very difficult, but I knew I had to do it. Did there. you have expectations on how long you wanted it to run for? No. Or I had no idea. Of None of that. No, of course you wanted to run as long as it can. Yeah. You know? And you want to make it as good as possible. But I know how tough, to, I I know how hard it is to have shows run a long time. Yeah, people just don't but, call uh, you and offer you jobs to host no, a show. They I mean, do that, not. That yeah. show did what? They do not. 287 episodes, 288 oh, episodes. We run like a year and a half. Is that's, a long, that's a lot of episodes of a, of a TV oh, yeah. show. Did yeah. you feel like when that show ended, was it uh, was it as hard an end as something like Bernie Mac, or was it not? Was it kind of like a. Like, all right, I got to do it, and then and then move on to the things that you. It was more like, all right, I got to do it. It was yeah. frustrating because I thought we were just catching our voice, um, but it was very it was very disappointing. But I was very sober about it. Maybe that's a fair way to say it. Where Bernie yeah. Mac hit me in the heart, you know, because that was, you know, you poured everything. That was your dream. You're getting all this attention, and then you know, yeah. and you felt like showbiz was over. I felt like it was over at that point. Like this that. one, I did not feel like that. I felt like, you know what. And I even thanked Comedy Central. I said, you know, thanks for letting me have this opportunity because I knew how rare it was. I was very gracious about it. I wasn't salty at all. 
I love that. Um, That's amazing. I was well because and I and I genuinely am saying that because I know how rare it is to get that opportunity. It's a small club, right? Right. Yeah. Where you get to put your opinion on television pretty much unfiltered every night like that. I just wanted to ask you. Um, you said this a couple times during our interview, just about manifesting work. Mm-hmm. You know, like you say, like I just put this out into the universe, right? What is that process all about? Like, do you just say that out loud to yourself in a room? Like, do you, yeah. you know, call someone on the phone? Like, I'm just curious about that. That may require an entirely uh, longer conversation, but it's kind of my ethos. I've, mm-hmm. Something I've done for a long time, and it just works. And I can't understand it, but it just there's power behind what I call putting it out there. And I've, I've shared it with some people and that kind of stuff. And it's the complete. It's it's completely different than setting goals. Or, or imagining something. It, it has nothing to do with your imagination. It has to do with putting something out there that becomes a certainty in you. And so the decisions you make are guided by that certainty. That's what the difference is. So, so it's not wishing for something. It's being certain about something. Let me give you an example. So when I was first doing stand-up, I was in open mic night. And I remember looking at the marquee and I was like, man, you know, in two years I want to have my name up there. You know, I just put that out there, right? Forgot about it. It was done. Two, a couple of years later, I'm driving up, I'm headlining the club, you know, I got my own parking space, you know, driving there. I get out of the car and I look at the marquee and it says, this week, Larry Wilmore. I go, oh, fuck. And I looked at my watch, had my own Casio day watch. It was almost two <laughs> years to the fucking day. Wow. You know, my name was on that marquee. It was something I I just put out there, you know. And what I realized, and this type of thing kept happening to me in different ways. It was kind of mystical at first, you know. And I realized when I look back at it is here's what happens when I put something out there and I just believe it. I don't try to guide or something. What happens is your actions um, help you do the things that service that, you know. Right. And it helps you get rid of the things that don't service that. Yeah, because it starts inside. Exactly. Yeah. So when I wanted to shift from being a performer to a writer, when I put that out there, when I said I want to have my own talk show that I put out 20 years before I had it. Right. My actions were guided towards that. So it gives me clarity when I'm making tough decisions. Am I going to take this show as a writer or I'm offered this thing as an actor? Well, guess what? That would be great to be an actor. That doesn't serve as my direction right now. This does. Why? Because mm-hmm. that thing's already out there. Right. It's the thing that gives me clarity over my decision making and that type of thing. Now, those decisions, you know, sometimes change or that type of thing. But the thing that's out there is kind of... I don't know if you say a destiny or whatever for certain things, but I've done it in smaller ways, bigger ways, that type of thing. I've done it from everything from financial to relationships, you know, things like that. And it's real interesting how it's just it allows you to operate unconsciously on things and you don't have to do it consciously all the time. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. And once you put it out there, are you? Don't even think about it. Don't even think about it. Nope. Uh Because it's already done. Right. So it's not something you're wishing. It's a certainty. Hell yes. Right. Right. That's awesome. Um, since this is a show about you know sort of overcoming obstacles and sure. struggling through through personal and professional um, things, like what sort of advice would you give mm-hmm. to whomever is listening, and you know whether they be struggling professionally or personally, um, some good advice you could sure. relay to them? I would say you know it's not a straight line. Success is not a straight line, and it's not it shouldn't be a destination. You know when I first started working at showbiz i immediately considered myself myself a success and i was success because i was doing what i wanted to do so success now is not 
is 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 not the thing that I'm going for, you know. Now I'm just choosing the things that I want to do in my success. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Yeah. You know, so give up these things that are going to pull on you in the emotional way that is distracting. You don't need that because it's unnecessary. If you choose to be in this business, you want congratulations. Now where you're going is up to you. It's what you want to do, but don't be this thing that there's this measure of success because everyone's is different. If, you know, it's the we are very lucky to be in this business and I'm consciously aware of that you know when I was in college I sold books door to door and I was in many people's houses who I could feel that they were trapped in what they were doing in their lives for whatever reasons you know and by the way you got to take care of your family that's a real thing that's no joke you know so I'm not making a judgment on that I get it but I thought if I have the opportunity to make a choice about my life before I have those responsibilities I win Mm -hmm. that is the measure of success for me. Everything else is bonus land. You know? yeah. So when you are allowed to do the thing that, that gives you oxygen, you know, consider that successful. Now, the things in your life, know that there's going to be ups and downs in it, but don't punish yourself for it. That's part of the journey. Part of, part of the, the living of the success is knowing that you have ups and downs. It's not all ups. Mm-hmm. And it's all part of it, you know. In, in life and relationships, you have, you know, gain and loss. You know, you need both of them, you know, to know where you are, you know. And just always better yourself. Don't be afraid of that. And what's right. the best way to get through those those valleys? Um, knowing that um, good times is not the same thing as happiness, you know. Happiness comes from a deep understanding of your need to have gratitude for the life that you're living. And good times and bad times are part of that happiness, you know. So knowing when you're going through the tough times, the things you want to rely on are your family, the people who are close to you in your life. If you have close friends, maybe it's a dog, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> yeah. Seriously, whatever it is, be grateful to have those things in your life. It's the life stuff that will get you through because you're going to have the ups and downs in the career stuff. But that's only career. It's really not as important as the life stuff. Be thankful for your health and all those things first, you know, yeah. and that'll get you through it all. Well, right. you are uh, incredible for for sitting Yay! down with us. And, yes, thank you, and yes, thanks yeah. again for for this coming. This is fun. Yeah, it's kind of a crafty conversation and stuff. Too. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you, Larry Wilmore. We enjoyed having you, thanks, guys. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank it you. I got to get to work. <laughs> <laughs> Never surrender is produced by Western Sound. Executive producers are Jack Hergoth, Stephen Kramer Glickman, and Ben Adair. Producers are Sabrina Fang and Cameron Kell. Music by Hannes Brown. On social media, you can check us out on Instagram at NeverSurrenderPod, on Twitter at SurrenderPod, and on Facebook at NeverSurrenderPodcast. You can also email us at NeverSurrenderPodcast at gmail.com to share your own stories about how you struggled failed, and ultimately never surrendered. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.